right, well, if you guys have a Bible with you, you can open it to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 22 through 32. Um, I'm going to preach on verses 22 through 30, but with an eye towards 31 through 37 which we'll look at next week. So beginning in verse 32, or 22 of Matthew chapter 12, it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. In addition to the testimony of the Word of God, of God Himself in His Word, there are other things that come to us and help us. They come to us to prove the validity of and the truth of not only Scripture, but the Christian faith. A lot of times, if we haven't studied or uneducated, when somebody says, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? We say things like, well, because it says it is. Now, that's true. That's good enough for me. But that's not good enough for the unbeliever. That is circular reasoning. So we need to think deeper than that. There are things that we can look at outside of Scripture to use to prove the validity of Scripture and the validity of the Christian worldview. And there is a truth, and I don't know if you guys have ever pondered this truth, but here's the truth. The Christian worldview 
and even more specifically, the Reformed or biblical Christian worldview is the only lens, the only worldview that we can look at the world through and make sense of everything under the sun. It's the only one. Everyone else who subscribes to any other um, worldview, any other way of looking at Scripture, they have to either live out some contradictions while saying they believe something else, or just admit there are contradictions. Only the biblical worldview can be lived out in such a way that there are no contradictions whatsoever. Not only does the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, Christianity makes sense of everything else, but it also, this is just a bonus, the bonus of the Christian worldview is that it offers consolation and comfort to one of, or if not the, biggest problem that we know that we have. Based on logic and reason, we can come to a conclusion that presents us with a massive problem. And I'll explain this just by way of introduction. This is just a little apologetic lesson, which I don't normally do this type of stuff, but I think this is fun. Here is a truth. There is something rather than nothing. I think we can all agree on that. There is something rather than nothing. We can look around and see there is something. Now, there are some who would say, well, the things that we see in reality, they're not real reality. They're just figments of our imagination. Nothing is real. Well, in order for that to be the case, there has to be an imagination to conjure that up. So there is something rather than nothing. And if there is something rather than nothing, we can look at that something and learn some things. Just like if you were to look at a watch or a building, or an automobile, you can look and see that there is order and there is design. And if there's order and there is design, then we can conclude, we must conclude, there is a designer. There is an orderer. Someone put it together. Design doesn't come from chaos, from nothing, or, or with no active agent. So there must be a designer. And because there is a designer and a creator, an orderer, he has complete control and authority over that which He has created because it's His. He designed it. This designer, by definition, is God. Sustainer, creator, ruler, sovereign. He's eternal. And by definition, because He's God, He's perfect. He doesn't lack anything. And because He's perfect... He can't be mixed with any imperfection, any error, any evil. So, he has authority, he rules, he can't be mixed with any error. Therefore, if any of his creatures would aspire to have a relationship with him, to know him, we can't go with any error. We have to be perfect. We have to meet his standard to have a relationship with him. And he requires his creation to operate under His authority. Now, if He is perfect, His standard is also perfect. Therefore, His creation must be perfect in order to have a relationship with Him. But when we look at our lives, we see we are not perfect. We, are, we have fallen short of perfection. We've rebelled against God. We seek to live by our own authority. God, again, by definition, is perfect. Perfect. And He is good. 
And if he is good, then he must punish rebellion. Any good judge has to punish injustice. Always. So he has to punish rebellion. Not just any rebellion, but our rebellion and our idolatry. So if we would be with God, not only does he have to punish our sin, but he has to at the same time forgive us of our sin so that we can come into a relationship with us. Now, the good news of the Christian faith is that this forgiveness is offered in the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the the Creator, God, for us. He did this in His life, which was perfect. Then when He died, not only was He just killed for political reasons, He actually bore the punishment for the sins of His people on the cross. God laying those sins on Him and Him dealing out our punishment. So if we trust in Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness. So the Christian worldview offers the very thing that we need, forgiveness for our sins, while at the same time holding up God as perfect and righteous and just. Now this forgiveness, what is this? We've talked about this many times. Forgiveness is this. The debt of sin that we owed to God, the wages of which are death, spiritual death and physical death. Wages of sin is death. That debt has been pardoned. God absorbing that debt into Himself and placing it on the account of Jesus Christ. So we now stand exonerated from all charges against us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. All the charges against us have been nailed to the cross. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. Forgiveness has been given. So we can now, if you are a Christian, we can now have a relationship with this Creator God, Creator and Designer. We forgo eternal death and we are saved unto eternal life. But, what do we do when we find out that there is a sin that is simply unforgivable? If we read Scripture correctly, we find out that one sin plunged Adam and his entire race and all of creation into bondage to sin and decay. Everything. Every human being that would ever live. One sin. So we know that one sin left on our account renders us unrighteous before God and puts us back on death row awaiting eternal punishment. One sin. So when we come to Scripture and we find out there is one sin that is simply unforgivable, our ears should should perk up. We, We should... Focus and we should learn what this is. Yes, there is a sin that a person can commit that is simply unpardonable. It's unforgivable. Now, we're not going to get there today, but we have to understand this story because so much error and so much debate and so much controversy has surrounded this unpardonable sin for the centuries 
that if you don't understand this story, the, the, the picture of what's happening here, you're going to get the sin wrong. And a lot of people have lived their, their entire lives worried that they have committed this sin because they didn't understand what happened in the story. So I want to take today, we're just going to walk verse by verse through this story and hopefully we'll just understand what's happening here and we'll see it as clear as day. Next week when we come to this sin, we'll see as clear as day what it is and how to avoid it. So, in Matthew, we're talking about opposition. The first came from John the Baptist. It wasn't so much opposition as it was just questioning, wondering. And Jesus answers. And then in chapter 12, we've read as the Pharisees brought two different oppositions to Jesus concerning His actions on the Sabbath. And by verse 14 of chapter 12, the Pharisees have gone out, conspired with the Herodians, how to destroy Him. They want Him dead by this point. So we went from there to John chapter 11, and we read that Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied it's better that the one man die for the nation than that the whole nation suffer. In other words, it's political. People are going to follow Jesus. And if, if so many people go and follow Him, then the Jewish nation won't have enough support against Roman oppression. And the Jewish nation will just be obliterated and absorbed into the Roman Empire. So it would be better just to do away with this Jesus character so that we can get our support back. It's political. It's about authority. It's about power. It's a power struggle. Just like most politics. So that's what's happening. And today what we're going to see is one more attempt at discrediting Jesus. And we're going to see a picture, I hope over the next two weeks, of the stubbornness of a truly hardened heart towards God. Now, I have been preaching through Exodus on Wednesdays, and so I can't help but draw the correlation between Pharaoh and the Pharisees. After nine plagues of death, destruction, pain, loss, fear, Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. And the problem is humility. Moses says on behalf of God, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? Pharaoh has seen the plagues over and over and over and over, and he won't humble himself. His servants have even said, surely this is the finger of God. Over and over, and yet he won't refuse himself. And, and what you learn is, is Pharaoh is not... He understands that this is a God more powerful than he is. He knows that. And he's not worried about just another God because Pharaoh, they had a pantheon of gods. It didn't matter to him to add one to the, to the system. The problem was this God is requiring Pharaoh to humble himself. And he just won't do it. It's about power against all reason, against all logic. He just refuses to humble himself. And I believe that that's what's happening with these Pharisees. Against all reason, against all logic, even though they can see with their own eyes the truth, they have made up their minds, we're not going to humble ourselves before this man. That's what we're seeing in, in, in Matthew's Gospel and in this specific story. I think this is, is played out very well and Jesus points this out for us very well. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him 
And he healed him that the man spoke and saw. So what we have is a miracle. Now we've, we've seen many, many miracles. This is not necessarily new for us. This miracle is, is a healing of a man with an affliction that is both spiritual and physical. And when we've talked about these, these afflictions and, and demon possession, the spiritual possession of these demons leads to the physical affliction. Demons, as we know, can control physical human bodies. Remember the, in Gadara, the demoniac was possessed by demons and they drove them out into the graveyard. Normal people don't do that. That's because of demon possession. When the demons left and went into the pigs, they went off the, the, the cliff. Normal pigs don't do that. It was because the demons controlled their bodies and made them do that. And here we have a man. Demons have come in. They are oppressing him. And they have caused him to be blind and mute. So he can't see and he can't speak. And Jesus, they bring him to Jesus and he heals him completely. So, so picture this scene. This man is brought. You know, he, can't, he can't speak and he can't see, so they have to bring him to Jesus. And he heals him completely. And we saw in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. His authority over the physical realm. He, he casts out demons. He forgives sins. He heals the leper. He raises the dead. He calms storms. He has transcendent authority over every realm and here is, is another example of this amazing power. He's completely healed. This is not subjective. You know if a man is blind and if a man is mute. And then in a moment, you know that he can speak and see. So he's healed fully and completely in plain view of the crowds who are following Jesus. Verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So the, the people, contrary to the way we read, we read it we're like, yeah, another miracle, another miracle, another miracle. Okay, we get it. These people had seen hundreds, if not thousands of miracles. And again, another miracle happens and they are amazed. They're blown away. They're taken back. After all he'd done, it never gets old. It's just over and over and over. He continues to come through every single time with perfect healing in an instant. And so this is how they respond. They're amazed and they respond, can this be the son of David? Now, in, in their original language, it's, it's phrased a little more negatively. It's more like, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? Now, when we talk about the son of David, that is... One who would come from David for us. But for the Jews, this meant a lot more. And, and if you study Scripture, hopefully this will mean a lot more to you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and makes what we call the Davidic covenant with David. And the promise says in so many words, there will be a king from the line of David on the throne of David over God's people forever. That's the Davidic covenant. So one will come from David, from his line, a son, who will be on the throne forever. Then we get to Psalm 110, and David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool under your feet. So what we're learning is there is one who's going to come from David and be chronologically lesser than David, but will be called David's Lord. That's how the Jews would have interpreted son of David. This means Messiah to the Jews. So what this is saying, these these people are beginning to make connections between what's going on before their very eyes and what they had been read and taught for their entire lives. Now, they're not making assertions. They're not not saying, oh, this is the Messiah. He's here. They're They're beginning to connect these dots and beginning to wonder, could this possibly be the one that we've been waiting for this whole time? I mean, is this him? And of course, we know because of the power struggle, the Pharisees can't have that. They can't have wondering. They can't have the common people connecting dots because up until this point, they had had authority over the common people. They had had sort of a a reign on them. And so if the common person begins to realize this is the Messiah or this might be the one we've been awaiting for, then the Pharisees have lost their grip. To verse 24, the Pharisees respond. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said... It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So when they heard it, that is when they heard what the people were saying, they responded. They respond to the response of the people. And they say this is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan, what we would call him. Now they've already tried this back in chapter 9, verse 34. They've already tried to to say He's doing this by the power of Satan. And we've seen this before. I think it's interesting and worth pointing out. They do not argue against the validity of the miracle. The most hardened haters of Jesus, the men who wanted Him dead for almost His entire earthly ministry, could not say, well, that didn't really happen. Oh, that's just just what people said, but here's what... No, they, they they couldn't say it. All they could say was, Well, there is power here. It's just not good power. It's bad power. It's not God power. It's Satan power. And notice that they say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. See, that's how we know, even though Matthew didn't mention it, that's how we know that the full miracle was to cast out the demons. And when the demons are gone, the other sickness is left where he could see and speak. So that is the opposition narrative. That's, that's the story. Man is brought to Jesus. Jesus heals him. The people respond. Could this be the son of David? Pharisees respond. No, he's working by the power of Satan. That's it. That's, that's all that Matthew gives us in that little opposition narrative. But the story continues, and that's how we know there is much more to learn here than just, no, Jesus does have power. There's more. So Jesus begins to answer their opposition in verse 25. He says, or it says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now, Mark, in his gospel, calls this a parable. And this is a parable of simple logic. Here it is. A kingdom, a house, a city, that is divided against itself, will not stand, it will crumble. Now, this is not just divided as in separate goals or separate passions. When I hear this, I always think of the bumper stickers you see that on one side 
has North Carolina State University Wolfpack. And on the other side it says University of North Carolina Tar Heels. And the quote says, a house divided. You know, like they, they sent their kids to different schools and now we, you know, we get into it when the teams play. That's not what this is. This is not just different passions. This is, it's been divided against itself. So here's the picture. You've got this kingdom or this house or this city with people and there's a division and the division pits the different sides against one another, divided against itself. This would cause internal war, internal conflict. So imagine that you would be an outside kingdom coming to fight this other kingdom. And you lay the siege works, you build the siege wall, you scale the wall, and once you get inside, you find out that your opponent is actually all of their opponents too because they're fighting themselves. So you just go in and just kind of help them, you know, you're cutting people. You know, then they're doing the same thing. They can't stand. They can't fight because they're divided against themselves. It will not stand. It's just simple logic. It won't work. So in verse 26... Jesus takes this logic and He applies it to the situation. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So they said, Jesus works for Satan. In other words, Satan sent his demons to come into this man to cause him to be blind and to be mute, to make his life miserable. Then Satan sent Jesus to come cast out these demons so that the man would be happy and healthy again. It doesn't make any sense. It's just, this is what Jesus is getting at. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. And he says, if Satan is operating this way, he's working against himself. That's that's not going to work. Satan is evil, but he's not dumb. I've heard it said, and I probably agree, he's probably the smartest of all God's creation. He's, he's slick, he's sly, he's wise. He's been watching human, he's not, he's not omniscient, but he's been watching human beings since the beginning. He knows how we think, how we operate, how we respond. He's not dumb. He would not do this. And so Jesus is showing the Pharisees how their accusations defy all common sense. But remember, they don't care about common sense. They just want Jesus gone. They just want to make Him look bad. They're not trying to to be logical or rational. In verse 27, He gives another response. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now this brings up a very interesting point in, in Scripture and history, and this is the idea of these exorcists. There were... Jewish exorcists who cast out demons. In Acts chapter 19, we read of itinerant Jewish exorcists. There were uh, seven of them, uh, sons of a man named Sceva at Ephesus. And Paul goes in to preach and other people are trying to cast out these demons. They say, we, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. They try to exorcise this, these demons and the demon says, well, Paul, we've, with Jesus we know and Paul we've heard of, but we don't know who you are. The demonic man actually whoops seven guys and they run out naked. There were exorcists in this time period. In Josephus' Antiquities, he wrote that Solomon, in his dabblings with occult things, 
actually knew how to cast out demons and he taught others to do the same. Now, how real were these exorcisms? We don't really know. There's no way to uh, substantiate the claims. The point is, the Pharisees had people in their own club who they said could cast out demons. And so, if the Pharisees are willing to attribute uh, exorcism power to God in their own group, then why will they not do it in the case of Jesus, who has done it way more, and probably with way more consistency than these sons of the Pharaohs, these, or the sons of the Pharisees. And what Jesus is showing the Pharisees is that there is inconsistency in what they're saying. He says, they will be your judges. In other words, let their actions and your response to their actions show you that what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Again, you're being inconsistent. Irrational, inconsistent. And then in verse 28... He gives them a little dose of reality. He says, but, here's a contrast, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So based on these two arguments that Jesus has given, it becomes plain that the Pharisees are being irrational, they're being inconsistent, they're wrong. And so... It's not the power of Satan that Jesus is using. It has to be another supernatural power. And so Jesus uses this little parable, this little phrase to point out where this power comes from. He uses this hypothetical statement. If it is by the Spirit of God, which we know by now that it is, the Spirit came on Him in Matthew 3 at His baptism. We just read in 12... 18, I will put my Spirit upon him. We know that it is the Spirit of God. Jesus says, if it's the Spirit of God that is allowing me to do this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has come, and by implication, I'm the king. I'm here. I'm bringing in the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is, if the Pharisees are wrong, then God's kingdom has come. I am the king. And you have set yourself up in opposition to the king. Now, Jesus has made this point very clear, and it's obvious the Pharisees are wrong. Everyone around would have been able to see the Pharisees are wrong, but then he uses another parable to explain what is actually taking place here in this story in verse 29. Or, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So here we got a parable with characters and places. So we got to draw these, the correlations here. We have a strong man who, is, who would be Satan. We have a house, which would be where Satan rules, his domain, where he's hanging out. We have plundering his goods, which would be taking the things that Satan has under his control and and stealing them, taking them back, binding the strong man would be rendering Satan incapable of defending himself. Then indeed, then he may indeed plunder his house. After Satan is bound, he can't defend his stuff. Take what you want. That's, that's what he's saying here. So what's happening in this story? Jesus has shown up on the scene of the world where Satan has been ruling and reigning deceiving the nations 
up until this point, God has been working primarily with the Jewish people. The Gentiles were unaware of what was going on. Satan had blinded the nations. He was deceiving the nations. Jesus comes in and begins to take back what Satan has blinded, has taken for himself. He's entered into the house of the strong man. And yes, Satan is strong. Satan is more powerful than any of us. But he's not more powerful than Jesus. He's just an angel. And so he comes, and Jesus binds Satan, ties up his hands, ties up his feet, so that he can no longer operate as he had been operating. And that's important, especially when you get to Revelation 20. Is he powerless? No. He does have power. Can he do what he's always done? No. Jesus is coming in. He's binding the strong man. And once bound, Jesus takes over. And that includes freeing men from demonic oppression. And so the Lord is explaining here what has taken place in this story and what is taking place through all of His earthly ministry. He is rendering the work of Satan as he had been operating useless. He's beginning to take back what Satan had taken for himself. He is destroying the works of Satan, plundering his house. In verse 30, he gives us one more dose of reality. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's no straddling the fence here. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You are either working that is putting forth the effort and laboring for His kingdom to grow it and to follow Him. Or you are working, laboring, putting forth the effort to destroy what He's trying to do. You're working for Him or you're working against Him, but everybody's working. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And if you think that you can just remain impartial and just sit back, you're actually working against the kingdom. You're an enemy of Jesus. See, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that some people think, I don't want to make a commitment, I'll just sit back, be as good as I can, be moral, do more good than bad, I know biblical morality, I'll sit back, I'll be good, and when I stand before God, surely He won't punish me. Surely He won't send me to hell because I've been good. Did I make a commitment? No. But I was really good. And the problem with that is it is not salvation. And God sends, has sinned, is, has sent, is sending millions and millions of really good moral people to hell. It's always happened. Being good is not what is required. To be unaffiliated, to be uncommitted, to be unsure, to be unresolved concerning Jesus is to be an enemy of Him on the opposite side of the battle lines. 
So if you're just trying to live a morally acceptable life, you are fighting against the gospel that says you can't do it. It's already been done in your place. See how you're working against the kingdom. Now we'll stop there in this story. The issue in this story is by whose power is Jesus operating? Is He operating by the power of God or is He operating under the power of Satan? The people are beginning to wonder, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Son of David? Could He be working under God's power? Well, the Pharisees are saying He's working under Satan's power. If He's working for Satan then He's evil, we should run. If He's working for God, God's kingdom has come and Jesus is King. For us, if Jesus is evil, we should abandon the faith and run as far as we can. But if He's God, if He is King, then we have to abandon ourselves. We have to abandon our worldly passions, abandon our desires, abandon our own kingdoms, and bow down to Him and submit to His authority. Now, what does that mean to submit to His authority? Simply, it means that every action comes out of and from His mandate. That means every choice that we make is filtered through Jesus. That means before you do anything, you should ask, does this, will this honor you, Jesus? Have you commanded this of me? You are my master. You are my ruler. I don't make decisions on my own. And so I'm running this by you. I'm checking this by my master. That's what it means to submit to Jesus. And there's no middle ground. You can't just not have an opinion. You're either working for him or you're working against him. The people said he could be the Messiah. The Pharisees said he worked for Satan. He could be working under the power of God or he could be working under the power of the prince of the demons. The question is, who do you say that he is? We have the evidence right here. We have the testimony right here of who he is in our hands. You've heard the logic from his own mouth. You've heard his, his parables and how he justifies himself. So who is he? The only logical response to these truths is to admit that Jesus of Nazareth is exactly who He said that He is. He is the Son of David, the King over all kings. He's the Son of Man who rules with dominion and power and a kingdom that will never end. He's the Messiah of God, anointed by God to preach good news to the poor. He's the Savior of the world who lays down His life for His people. He's the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world slain before the foundation of the world. He's the only mediator between God and us. The only way we can be reconciled back to our Father. He's the one who controls and binds demons and Satan. He is the Great physician who causes the blind to see, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dead to raise, the barren to give birth. He is 
God. Full circle, if there is a God, He is by definition perfect. And if He is perfect, He requires us to be perfect. And if we're not perfect, we need to have our sins forgiven. We have all fallen short and we don't need to try harder. We don't need to do better. We need this Savior. So who do you say that He is? Can you really say in your heart deep down, nobody knows what you're saying, you're not fooling anybody, can you really say, this is my Savior, this is my Lord, this is my friend? Who do you say that He is? It's really important, moving into next week, and the unpardonable sins. Let's pray.